been a, a great holiday at our house. Um, I have five kids. They're all grown. Two of them are married, and everybody got to come in for at least part of the time. And uh, we decided a couple of years ago that uh, when you have five adult kids and their two spouses, that's nine people total to feed. Um, that's really a lot of prep time, or if you take them out, it's really expensive. So we came up with this notion of uh, our annual cooking contest. So we assign each of the kids a night, uh, um, or each of the couples a night to cook. And that way, um, I still end up paying for the food. I don't understand that piece of it, but <laughs> it's supposed to be cheaper. I'm not sure, sure, sure it is. Well, I've discovered a couple things. None of my kids, other than Danielle and her husband, Philip, are good cooks. Um, no, I've eaten great. I, I have because all my kids know how to follow recipes, and they're, they're really good at that. But because they're not cooks, you never eat on time. We had one meal before 9 o'clock all week. All the rest were after. Uh, um. <laughs> my son... This is a competition, so they really try to cook well. My son decided he was going to make beef wellington from scratch. And uh, he's, and I was his sous chef, so I got to help. We started at 11 o'clock, and we ate at 9.30. <laughs> it was really good. I don't know if that was because I was so hungry or he did a good job, but it was really good. <laughs> Um, and he, he actually won the contest. But here, you know what was the great thing about doing that is, uh, I mean, the food's good, you eat late. But, but it starts getting so late, and people are so hungry, they start helping to cook. So at the end, everybody's kind of pitching in because they want to eat. And that's what's fun, to have all your kids around and everybody kind of pitching in. And, and uh, even if the food, well, the food, all of the food was really good. So, but that was the best part my holiday. We're going to go ahead and uh, receive a morning offering this morning uh, um, as part of our worship. I just want to let you know, we finally got final numbers for the child survival program, the offering we took on Christmas Eve. We had told you it was 35000 It's actually a bit higher than that. It's $39,660. Yeah. So 25000 of that will go to the Child Survival Program. The other will go to, compa all of it goes to Compassion. But we'll be talking with them about how that will be used and letting you know that. But y your generosity amazes me. Um, so I, I, you need to be commended for that. That's just awesome. Spring is coming, and part of spring means we have some life classes we do. There are three of them coming this spring. Uh, they're tailored classes for people going through certain stages or issues in their lives. One is divorce, divorce care. You've been through a divorce. That is a tough transition, really hard. You need a supportive community around you to help you talk through and walk through that. Great class. Hard places are for those people who have raised kids, uh, brought them up in the way they should go, and their kids decided not to go that way. Uh, a lot of us have wrestled with that. What do we do with our kids as they get teenagers? And they're not making decisions that we'd like to see them make. And that is heartbreaking, I'll tell you, um, because it's your kid and you want the best for them. So great class uh, with people who are struggling through that issue. And then grief share, if you've lost somebody who's close to you. That is one of the moments the community needs to come around is when we've lost somebody who's close to us to help us. Uh, wrestle through that because grief is a process. It's not just something that happens in an instant and uh, good to have people around you to help with that. Um, this morning, we are going to start a new series called Rhythms Around the World. I'm excited about this because we have spent over the last year uh, a ton of time revamping our whole mission strategy, how we engage uh, in missions, the global task of reaching the nations and seeing the kingdom established around the world. Um, excited what we've come up with. We want to take the month and help you understand that. So this morning I'll be talking about why missions. Next week I'll be talking about uh, our focus on the city, the, the local aspect of missions. The week after that we're going to zero in on development. Why do we do things like compassion and care about the poor around the world? 
And then the last week, we're going to talk about the issue of uh, Islam. One of our focuses as a missions group I is on Muslim countries and Muslim people. And we want to explain why that is and why that's such an important mission field. Even though with all the controversy, we think that as a church, we need to be really committed to reaching uh, people with a Muslim background for, for Christ. So we'll explain that. So I'm excited about it. Um, but we thought we'd start by letting you see how one family has kind of interacted and wrestled with this issue of missions in their life. So please watch the screens. So the question I want you to be thinking about as we uh, spend some time talking about this issue of missions this morning and the global task is how are you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, engaged in the task of global missions? What does that look like in your life? So that's kind of the question to, to be thinking about in the background. I want to begin this morning by talking about how we frame our lives, how we uh, try to find meaning in our lives, and I want to compare two kind of worldviews to help us understand that. Uh, this distinction comes from a guy named Walt Russell, who's a professor at Talbot Seminary in California. I really liked how he... he uh, framed this notion of two different worldviews. The first worldview is kind of an existential worldview. Don't get freaked out by the word existential. It's just a philosophy of life that basically says we exist and as existing, in, in our existence, we have to fill that existence with meaning. And, and it's up to us to do that. Nobody else is going to give us meaning. We've got to find meaning and we, we, we do that a, as individuals. And the notion is we're the two little circles in the middle. This is our life as an individual. And the way we find meaning is we kind of take pieces from the elements of life. Life is kind of like this giant smorgasbord. Uh, um, and we take pieces of it to establish our identity, to give us a sense of success and fulfillment and significance. And, and that's how we, we go through life. What, what is interesting about this, this worldview is it's ahistorical. What I mean by that is throughout history, people have not really looked to themselves to give them their own identity. They really have looked to their family, to their tribe, to, to their, their religious group that they're part of. That's how they conceived their identity. This notion that you are, are an individual on your own to establish your own meaning and significance in existence is really a Western thought that has no roots in history, but Americans, man, we're captured by this notion of individualism. And it just seeps into every part of our life. It is one of the things that makes us narcissistic uh, in our approach and self-focused and selfish and relativistic. Relativistic because we're, we're the only measure of everything in our lives. We, we are the authority in our lives, or at least that's common a common worldview. Anyway, the central goal in that notion is to create meaning and purpose and, and personal fulfillment. Now, it's really interesting. As psychologists have looked at this existential worldview, one of the things that they discovered is that a lot of people who hold to that and try to live that out in their life end up with this sense of emptiness inside, this angst. And it's because there's nothing greater than themselves to tie themselves to. And when they begin to reflect upon this existence that they're trying to fill with meaning, they come to the realization that the, if there's nothing bigger than themselves, then when they disappear, it all disappears. Um, this is a problem of a worldview that leaves God out of the picture. It's very difficult to find significance and meaning because in the end, everything burns up. So you may write the great novel, you may be an incredible humanitarian, you may do all these amazing things, but if in the end it all burns, who cares? You might as well drink, be happy for tomorrow we die and take that orientation. It's just as satisfying. So there's this sense of emptiness. You know, this is what fascinates me is a lot of people add religion to part of that mix as part of the elements in life that they're looking to to give them some significance. So they kind of bring God into the picture, or church or the Bible. Just as pieces, uh, it, it's still all about them, 
but they're using God to give them significance or God to give them happiness. And God becomes a means to their end of self-fulfillment and significance and purpose. And they think that's how to, to approach. You see this all the time in the Christian life. In fact, we have packaged the gospel in such a way to appeal to this worldview. We say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? How many have heard that? How many have told people that? Is that true? Hmm, I don't know. Well, let's talk about that. God does love us, but does he have a plan that's individually designed for your personal happiness and fulfillment? Is that really what God is about? Because that's what that communicates. Um, And the problem is, when we communicate the gospel that way, we, we, we give people half truth. It's true that God does love us. I'm not convinced it's true that God has a wonderful plan for your life. That may not be true. Uh, um, and we, we begin to communicate this notion that because we're the center of things, God is something that just can be attached to our lives. So we tell people the way you become a Christian is you just acknowledge that God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and you pray this prayer. Or you walk this aisle and you make this decision. And if you make this decision, then God can become a piece of your life. And in a sense, he becomes fire insurance for you, right? You, you have God in your life. He'll get you to heaven. But you can still be the center of all things. Um, told you a couple weeks ago that my brother-in-law became a believer because he had this very real encounter with Jesus. I mean, kind of like a vision. Um, It's just rocked his world. It's so fun talking to him because now everything is changing. One of the things he told me over New Year's was that he always thought he was a believer because when he was very little, he prayed this prayer and actually got baptized. But then he never did anything with it. Didn't go to church, didn't live out his faith. Didn't. It it was just something he bolted on because it was one of the elements he could partake of that he thought, hey, will give me significance and happiness and fulfillment. The fundamental flaw with that is when you have that notion of life, it's all about you. And that's how we go through life. We're very narcissistic. We think life is all about us. We're the center of our universe. And it's all about how we find meaning. And, you know, God's a good deal. (laughs) We, We like that kind of gospel presented that way. Because think about what we tell people. We say, look, if you accept Jesus, you get forgiveness, you get meaning, purpose, peace, and eternal life. What a deal. Who would say no to that deal? All you do is pray a prayer or walk an aisle. Because that's conversion, right? Who in their right mind would say, wait a second. No, of course you do that. The problem is it's just not a very valid worldview. Because life is not all about us. Russell presents an alternative worldview that he calls the biblical worldview. And he says, here you find meaning, not in of yourself, but, but you find it by connecting yourself uh, to that which is historical, what's happening in history. Um, and he makes the argument that people in the Old Testament and New Testament looked for a historical rather than, rather than an existential fulfillment. It's this notion that to find meaning, we have to tie ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. If life is always about us, it's going to be empty and in the end unfulfilling. So the only way to align yourself with something bigger than yourself is to figure out what God is doing in the world. And we've talked about this notion that God does have a plan, right? He does. And here's his plan. He created the world, uh, people in his image, so he cares about humanity. There was a fall that broke our relationship with God, broke our relationship with ourselves, broke our relationship with each other, broke our relationship with, with the creation at large. It affected everything. So God says, well, wait, I'm going to, to, to bring about redemption. I'm gonna, you rebelled. You took over the kingdom for yourself, so I'm going to win it back. And he began to do that through the nation of Israel, elected Abraham and then the nation of Israel, and they were to live in such a way that they became attractive, drawing people to God. 
then Christ comes. And what does Christ do? He comes and he uh, reestablishes. When Jesus comes, we're told that the kingdom is at hand, that the kingdom is entering. What is happening is the king is coming to bring about redemption. Jesus lives and he dies on the cross. And in his death on the cross, he defeats all evil, conquers death, and provides forgiveness for sin and lays the foundation for all of redemption. So the kingdom at that moment is inaugurated. The rebellion is being put down, but the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet. That's the next step of the plan, which we call restoration or culmination or whatever you want to call it. It's in the future when Jesus comes back again to establish his kingdom in its fullness, when everything is made right. So God has a plan. The plan is to establish his kingdom on earth to bless all the peoples of the world through faith using his people. And all of that is done to his glory. Now, do you notice a fundamental difference between this worldview and the existential worldview? The existential worldview is all about us. This worldview is all about him. All right? So what we communicate now, God loves you. He does and has a wonderful plan really not about you, it's to establish his kingdom on earth and bless all the people through, the faith, through their faith. But guess what? You can be part of that plan. You can be a piece of that plan. You can participate in what God is doing in the big picture. And, and the notion is, is that by participating in what God is doing, we can get meaning to our lives. See, here's the reality is people are not self-contingent. And what I mean by that is they don't exist in and of themselves. They're not self They can't cause their own existence or maintain their own existence as create. We're finite beings. We have a beginning and an end. We're finite beings. And that limits us then in our ability to provide our own meaning. The only way a finite being, being can, can find significance that goes beyond themselves and that lasts for eternity is to link themselves to someone who's infinite. It's kind of like we're in the United States. We want This is a bad analogy, the best one I could think of at the moment. Uh, we're in the United States. We want to get to Europe. And, and if we try to do that on our own, we'll swim for it. And it doesn't matter how far out you get, you're ultimately going to fail because you cannot, in your own resources and power, accomplish that feat. But if God has a plane that is flying from the U.S., to Europe, and the goal is to get to Europe, then what do you do? You get on the plane. Our goal is to have meaning and significance. God is doing something in his plan in history. If we want to have significance, meaning then we attach ourselves to what God is doing in the big picture, then our lives take on meaning and significance. We become part of his grand story. One of the places you see this played out in a conversation is between Peter and Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What's Jesus talking about? He's saying, look, God has a big plan here. And the big plan is I'm going to go to the cross and die. And Peter's going, wait a second, you you misunderstood. That's not how you find fulfillment. You don't go to the cross. You know, that will not make you happy, Jesus. Don't you get it? And, And Jesus says, wait, Peter, you don't get it. It's not about me. There's something bigger going on here than my personal fulfillment and happiness. Notice what he says. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. You can't do that. That's giving up everything. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are stumbling a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What's he saying? He said, Peter, you, you're, you're living an existential view of life. He didn't know that. Okay, it was... Anyway, he was living a view of life that he thought it was all about him. And Jesus should live that say, just about him. And, 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 you know, human concerns that you would be successful and satisfied, fulfilled and happy. And, all. and Jesus said, no, it's not about me. It's, I got to do what the will of God is. 
That's what it's about. Not about my personal happiness. Peter was confused. Notice. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if you want to be my, my disciple, my follower, you've got to take up your cross. You've got you to follow me. I'm pursuing God's plan and purpose. If you pick up the cross, you do the same thing. That's what it means to be my disciple. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What's he saying? He said, look, as long as you live for yourself, if you want to attain all this happiness on your own and all this success and think that's going to make you fulfilled and give your life significance, you're going to lose your life because that's a dead end. It's bankrupt. But, but if you lose your life, in other words, if you give up your life and just follow me, you'll find it. You find life in following the plan of Jesus, becoming part of God's big picture plan in the world. And then notice what he says. This is, I mean, when you see this in context, suddenly you go, wow, that makes sense. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What good is it if you get all the money and all the success and all the great relationships and all this, all the extraneous, you know, the, all the elements of life, you get them just the way you want them, you just have to align things. What good is it? Because in the end, you're going to lose your soul because your soul has to be connected to what God's doing. And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He's saying, look, all that other stuff, <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not. For the Son of Man is going to come. What's he talking about here? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each according to what they have done. What's he, he's talking about the big picture at the end. The restoration is coming. The day is coming when the king is coming back. Everything is going to be made right, and you're going to be rewarded then if you've participated in what God is about. If you've been off living on your own, just trying to pursue your own happiness and stuff, and ignored what God was doing... You don't want to do that, basically, because you're going to lose out. Because he's going to reward those who attach themselves to God's plan. Different ways, you and the world. Now, here's what's interesting. As God works out his plan and we attach ourselves to it, we begin to do the very things we were designed to do. And when we do the very things we were designed to do according to God's plan... The byproduct of pursuing his plan is that we get fulfilled in our calling and our role. We get significance. We get meaning. We get peace. Not because we're pursuing those, but rather because we're pursuing God and his kingdom. And those are the byproducts. It's topsy-turvy, isn't it? So here's my question then. If we find meaning and significance by having this historical biblical worldview and becoming part of God's plan, how do we make sure we're living lives that are connected to that plan? What does that look like? And to answer that question, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 28 because at the end of the book of Matthew, first gospel, Jesus tells us how to live out and be part of this grand plan that he has for the nations in the world. It's found in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 18. This is known as the Great Commission, all right? You've heard it and read it. I want us to take a closer look at it because I think when we begin to understand it, it takes on some nuances that, that we may have never realized before. Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 18. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Anytime you see Jesus on a mountain, what he's saying is really significant. Sermon on the Mount, the Transfiguration, here, the Great Commission. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Remember, God's plan is to bring his kingdom to all the nations of the world uh, so people can participate in it through faith. He's saying this is how that plan's going to get taken there through, through my disciples going into the world, proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. So what I want to look at closely here is, is first of all, the affirmation. Talk about what that is. Then the four verbs that come across as commands, go, make disciples, uh, baptizing and teaching. And then the last thing I want to look at is the promise of his presence, okay? So let's look at the affirmation first, this notion uh, that all authority is Jesus. Jesus says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. The guy saying that has uh, just been crucified as a state criminal by the Roman authorities, just been rejected by the religious establishment, scorned by the people, betrayed by one of his closest followers, and denied by the others. At this moment, Jesus, (laughs) from one perspective, didn't win. He lost everything. And yet he shows up and he says, guess what, guess what? We won! What? Well, we won because he's resurrected. Okay? This is the resurrected Jesus. And he's saying, hey, it's all working out exactly the way I planned. And and believe it or not, God now has given me all authority in the universe. You see that through his resurrection. He is now claiming that Caesar, the one who crucified him, will someday bow his knee to him. He's saying that he is Lord not just of the church, but of history, of families, of tribes, of cities, of governments, of nations, he, he, uh, of countries, of continents, of planets. When he says Lord of heaven and earth, he, that's a Jewish way of saying everything in the universe, the heaven and the earth, that's the whole continuum, and everything in between. He's Lord over all the whole universe. When we say Christ is Lord, that's what we're saying. What we're really saying, hey, he's king over everything. This is not just a personal statement that Jesus is making. He's telling us about the hierarchy of the universe. It's a cosmic statement. He's saying, you've you got to understand that, that I am now in a position of supreme authority in all the created order. That's an amazing statement. And it's a kingdom statement. Because remember, in Matthew, he's been talking about this kingdom coming. And the kingdom is here because the kingdom is right. And, and now Jesus is saying, look, I, I, I've defeated sin, death, provided forgiveness. And because I've defeated all that, I now have all authority. Even though this rebellion in your world is still happening, now it's under, under my authority. It's his kingdom statement. And, and this kingdom statement provides the motivation to fulfill the mission. You see that when he says, therefore, go. The most important word is the therefore. Why do we make disciples of other people? Why do we want to share the gospel of the kingdom? A lot of times we think, well, well, we need to share the gospel because people, people need to go to heaven. We need to share the gospel because God loves them. Uh, we need to share the gospel because people need forgiveness. We, we need to share the gospel because people need meaning. And all those things are true. <laughs> but that's not why Jesus says we need to share the gospel. He's saying the reason you share the gospel, the therefore, is because I'm king. And if I'm king, then everybody, every created thing in the universe, if it's going to fulfill its purpose and intent, has to bring me glory. Recognize me as king. In other words, missions happens ultimately for the sake of God's glory. Not for the sake of people. Now, on the backside, we all benefit. But God ultimately is about His glory and His kingship. You see, folks, we were designed and find our fulfillment and meaning in giving God his proper place in our lives. And whenever we don't do that, we're out of step with him. He has the right 
to rule because, after all, he is king. And because he is king, he deserves our allegiance. He deserves our service. And, and part of what we want to say is, hey, you guys got to get it. There, there's a king who's supreme in authority, has authority over everything. You, you got to worship him. You got to serve him. This is the very thing you were created for. You see, in Jesus' mind, it was never about us. It's always been about him and his father. I know we as evangelicals don't like that. Because we want it about us. That's how we heard the gospel. That's how we embraced the gospel. That's how we accepted Jesus. We did it so we could go to heaven, have eternal life. But that's a distortion. I mean, those things are all true. But, but the ultimate motivation behind all evangelism and all missions is God's glory, not us. That shifts how you view your Christian life. We package the gospel in existential terms. And when we do that, we leave out the kingship of Jesus. And we miscommunicate the ultimate truth of the gospel. We end up making it about human beings rather than God. We make it anthrocentric rather than theocentric. And the gospel is theocentric. It is about God is at the center, not human beings. We live for his glory to affirm who he is. You say, oh, well, that makes God an egotist. No, God is not an egotist. He is who he is. <laughs> for us not to give him glory, to, to not recognize his authority, gets us out of step with him. It, it means we're losing our life because we're giving it to the wrong thing. The only way our lives take on significance is when we align with him and who he is and give him glory because that's what we were designed to do. And anything short of that misses ultimate meaning. So in light of that, because all authority has been given to Jesus, he says, therefore, what? Go. Make disciples. Baptizing and teaching. They're, they're actually, we kind of translate them as four verbs. There's actually only one verb in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples. The go, the baptizing, the teaching are our participles that support the major activity of making disciples. So when you get to verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, uh, um, the, the, the command isn't to go. In fact, you could translate that as you go. There's a sense uh, of an imperative or command, but more than a command, it's just assumed you'll be going, Right? Think about who he's talking to at the moment. The original 11 disciples, these are guys who left their families, gave up their careers, uh, followed Jesus all over Palestine, gave up literally their life to be apprenticed to him, to be his disciple. So he's not saying, oh, you guys got to go. They already went. He's saying, as you go, as you keep going. You, you see, the notion of going has been overplayed. We tell people, oh, you got to go. No, the notion is if you're a disciple, it means you're a follower. If you're a follower, then you're going. If you're not going, you're not following. If you're not following, you're not a disciple. Does that make sense? So it's not an issue, will you go? The only issue is, where will you go? That means... Where you're living at, you're going. If you're going, then you're on mission in that place. You live with a sense of destiny that God has called me to this place and has called me into these relationships and this place so that I can share the reality of the gospel and the kingdom with these people. And if I don't live with that, then I really got to question my discipleship. Jesus is assuming that we will be penetrating and infiltrating and permeating the culture building beachheads into Satan's territory, developing webs of relationships so we, we can be spheres of influence. There is no iota of a hint that Jesus ever thought that we would retreat from the culture or society or isolate ourselves for the safety or the safety of our kids. would make no sense to him. We're called to be salt and to be light. And our families are called to be salt and light. We've got to figure that out because we've got to go. It's just assumed. So as you go then, 
then the command is make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? A disciple is an apprentice or a student, someone who has given their total, total allegiance to another. Jesus is saying, look, for the last three years, guys, you, you have apprenticed yourself to me and you followed me and you've given up your life for me and I've been the focus of your allegiance and your loyalty. Now I want you to take that, that discipleship, and give it to others. Make sure that they do the same thing. Make disciples. And the implication is you can only serve one master. You can only be a disciple to one master. You can't, can't be a disciple to multiple masters because the one you're a disciple to has your allegiance. Now, here's the problem. We come to the Great Commission, and, and we don't read it that we're supposed to make disciples. We think we're supposed to get people to make decisions, right? Because that's what we do in terms of evangelism. We want people to make a decision. We want people to pray a prayer. We want people to walk the aisle because we assume that if we get them to pray a prayer, walk the aisle, make a decision, then they become a disciple. But that's not true. Conversion is just the first step. But we're so numbers-oriented and we're out of a revivalist transition. What we measure is decisions. We feel really good about decisions. Have you ever looked at the research done on the Billy Graham Crusades of how many of those decisions, all those people flowing forward, actually end up living out a discipled life in a church? It's less than 2%, if I remember my statistics right. Less than 2% actually follow Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a disciple. I don't care what decisions you've made. The command isn't simply to get converts. The command is to get disciples. This is why we talk about rhythms around the world as our mission strategy because we want to see people transformed the kingdom coming in them. We want to see people neighboring, the kingdom being presented to others, and restoration, the kingdom coming in the world. Because all of that is part of discipleship. We need to measure our effectiveness far differently than we have been. Because it's not simply about decisions. It's about disciples who are following Jesus. That's the command. And then notice he says, look, we're to make disciples of all nations. And the, the phrase here is ta ethne. It, it, we look at nations as a political state. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says ta ethne, he's talking about people groups, people who have a common language, common culture, oftentimes a common territory. And he's saying, look, I want you to take this message of the gospel to every people group of the world, beyond continents and just nations, but to every, every language that's out there. And you get a glimpse of the end game here. Uh, if you turn to Revelation chapter 7, we, we kind of look into heaven and we get a glimpse of what's going on. And he says, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from what every tribe, ethne, nation, I'm sorry, every ethnic nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What's going on? This is the end of time. And here's the accomplishment of the goal. God has reached all the nations of the earth, and now they're before Him, worshiping Him. And if you listened into that worship, it would be in every language in history. And they're worshiping God. That's the end game. Why? Because remember, he's Lord over all. If he's Lord over all, then every tribe, nation, tribe, and language ultimately has to worship him. That's the goal. So you make disciples of all nations, and then we are to be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, to be baptized into someone's name meant you were to, to be under that person's allegiance. In a sense, when you got baptized in someone's name, you were surrendering ownership to that person. In a sense, when you were baptized in someone's name, you were becoming their property. So when we baptize people in the name of the triune God, we're basically saying you're making a statement that God now will be the one you give supreme loyalty to. It's this incredible 
statement of commitment. And that's where discipleship begins. You make him the supreme focus of your life. And what else is interesting about this? Baptism very seldom took place as an individual. You were, in that day, always baptized into a community because that's the community you were identifying with. So when you got baptized, you were saying, hey, I am part of this, this community that is following hard after Jesus, that's owned by him, who, who, whose allegiance is in him. What, what do we do? We don't present the gospel that way. We make it as an individual decision. You have a personal and private relationship with God, right? And, and church, in our culture, is kind of seen as optional, that is not New Testament Christianity. You could not be a believer. I mean, you could have a personal relationship with God, but the New Testament knows no idea of a private relationship with God because it was always happening in, in community. When you became a believer, you were baptized into the body, both spiritually and physically. You became part of the church. That's how you lived out your faith. If you're not in a church, not involved in a community, God will not be able to do all he wants to in your life because he designed us as a body, intricately linked to each other. But American Christianity is, oh, no, no, it's just about Jesus and me. No, it is not just about Jesus and you. Never was, never will be. That's not the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just about you. It's about him and his plan. And what is he doing? He's using the church, his community of people, to further his agenda in the world. How are you going to be part of that agenda if you're not even part of a church? Then he says, not only do you baptize them, but you teach them. And notice what he says. He says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's interesting. Jesus is looking for depth in his disciples, this richness and maturity, this wholeness. People who have a great understanding of the ways of God, but not only have a great understanding, but actually then obey that understanding and live it out in their lives, right? So you teach them to obey everything that he commanded. Now what that means is we cannot give in to smorgasbord Christianity. Do you know what smorgasbord Christianity is? You know, you know what a smorgasbord is. You go, oh, I want uh, the macaroni and cheese. I don't want any peas. Take a little beef but no ham. We just kind of pick and choose all the good stuff that we like. A lot of people approach Christianity that way. They say, I want this relationship with Jesus, but I, I just want certain things. I'll be obedient in certain areas. Radical generosity. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. How about if I just give like 2%? That's the national average. I'll, I'll be really generous. I'll give three. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, no, you don't understand the serving. The serving is that it's all mine. You give it all. I'll let you keep some. But remember, it's mine. It's my stuff you're using. Oh, that changes things. Serving, love your enemies. What? I want to love the people who love me. I want to love the people who are like me. I don't want to love people who don't speak the language I do or have a different color skin or are here illegally or, or you know, that scare me. I only want to live, love people that I'm comfortable with. Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. You love your enemies. What, what is it if you love your friends? Anybody does that. You love your enemies. Oh, sexuality. Uh, keep sexuality reserved for marriage. Until you're married, be celibate. Oh, well, God, that just makes no sense. I mean, people got to live together to find out if they're compatible, right? Because you don't want to get married to somebody you're not compatible with. So you got to live together. God said, no, no, no. You, you, you don't understand marriage. Marriage is not being about compatible. Marriage is about unconditional love. It's about commitment that works even if you're not compatible. Marriage is this basis that you build your life on that says, I'm sticking in here no matter what. When you live together, you're just saying, I'll live and stay with you if. And the if is horribly detrimental. The statistics are that people who live together are far more likely to get divorced. 
Oh, and we think, oh, that living together, that doesn't imply if you've already been married. If you're divorced, you already know what sex is like, so it would be unreasonable for you to be celibate until you happen to get married again. No, 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 you don't understand. That's not optional. You don't pick and choose. Jesus says, teach them to obey all of it. You see, in in the Christian life, there is no room for nominalism, which means in name only. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ only in name, and you're not a follower, you're not a disciple. Because to be a disciple, you have to be a follower. And if you're not following, you're not a disciple. He said, Nate, that, that seems awful harsh. And I agree. You know, churches live in this tension. Because the tension is this. On the one hand, we want to set the bar of expectation in terms of lifestyle and obedience really high. Because the gospel and God calls us to set it really high. But on the other hand, we want to be a place of grace and love. And there's this tension between those two because how do we set the bar high and and call people to radical obedience and yet at the same time be unconditional, loving, and accepting? But that's the challenge because that whole thing is built on this notion of grace. We don't win God's favor by meeting the expectations and living up to the bar. No, God gives us his grace and accepts us where we're at and loves us as we are, but loves us so much he wants us to grow. And you see, the bar isn't just in the church. The gap isn't just in the church. Guess what? The gap's in our own lives, right? Because the reality is, is I'm so messed up and I'm broken and I don't live up to the bar. And the reality is, is you don't either. So all of us depend on God's grace. But the challenge is still work towards clearing the bar. You have three values we talk about around Waterstone. Truth, which is setting the bar. Love, which is accepting people where they're at. And grace, which is that God accepts us, not on the basis of our behavior, but on the basis of Christ's death. But having been accepted, out of gratitude, our life radically changes. So we want to live obediently. Last, last piece is the promise. Jesus says, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's a great promise, isn't it, that Jesus is always going to be with us? What we want to do is rip that out of its context. We don't say, well, Jesus is always with me. And in one sense, theologically, he always is with you. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, look, when you're on mission, when you're making disciples, when you're going places that are dangerous and hard, when you're giving up everything and living the life I call you to, and it becomes difficult, I want you to remember, I'm there. I'm with you. When you're on mission, I'm right there with you. And who is it with you? Oh, the one who has all authority. Remember, there's nothing in heaven or earth over which Jesus does not have reign. That means there is nothing that he doesn't have the power to do with as he pleases. He has the power over stars and galaxies and planets and the wind and the rain and the lightning and the waves and the floods and the fires. He has authority over on the molecular level, the realities of creation, every piece of DNA is under his authority. Every plant and animal and bacteria and parasite and germ. Every heart, ultimately, and every breath and every nerve and every nation and government, army, terrorist, leader, all of it, business, neighbor, every, everything. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you're on mission, you don't have anything to worry about. Might not work out the way you think it should, but it's going to work out the way I think it should. And if it works out the way I think it should, that'll be okay. <laughs> what are we doing? We're always trying to play it safe, you know. We're worried. We got to make things work out right. We got to... No, 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 no. Just get on mission. Just 
Run hard after God because if you run hard after Him, He's got your back. Because the end game is you will be with Him. And the promise is, is that He'll take all the, excuse me, but the crap of life that's so hard for us and use it for His glory and purposes and our good. Why? Because He's king over all. So we have nothing to worry about other than being on mission. So, the next couple of weeks, we're going to give you some practical things t- to do. We want you to know certain things. So there's a class, intro class to missions, an intro class to Islam, perspectives coming. If you've never taken perspectives, man, you want to sign up for that class. It'll change your life. We want you to know certain things. We want you to pray. So we expose you to global intercessors and some prayer guides. We want you to give. If you've never adopted a missionary, uh, what a great way to get involved in missions. Adopt a missionary or sponsor Compassion Kid. And then go. I mean, as you go, get involved in local ministry. Or maybe God is calling you to change locations of where he wants you to go. We'll talk about those as we move forward. This morning, though, I want us to end by taking the Lord's Supper, communion, but I want us to do it differently. I want you to realize that when we do the Lord's Supper, we, in a very encapsulated way, are proclaiming God's plan, right? We take the bread, which is his broken body. We dip it in the cup, which is blood. He died, and that's at the core of his plan to redeem all humanity. So we're reenacting that, and we're saying, look, all of creation looks to this event because he because of it, is supreme authority in all of life. So we're proclaiming his plan. And when we ingest it, when we eat it, we're saying we're part of that plan. That's what our life is about. And when we do that, we're to understand that at the same moment we do that, there are millions and millions and millions of believers doing that around the world. And it is to remind us that we are part of something far, far bigger than we could ever imagine. I mean, there's a lot in taking that little piece of bread and dipping it in that cup. This morning, I want to give you a couple minutes before the servers come down. I just want you to sit and reflect and ask yourself, am I really following hard after Jesus? Am I really his disciple? Am I really being obedient? Wrestle. Uh, Because all of us have places where we're not. I know I do. I know you do. We just do. But God wants us to seek his forgiveness, come to him open-handed with open hearts because he wants to work in us to be recipients of his grace and his love and ultimately to be on mission. So sit, take some moments. In a couple of minutes, the servers will come down. And when you're ready, you can go to a station.